short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. people I think is good people. They are they have not to charge with the guilty of all the lies. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to episode six of the Cold War podcast. My name is Cameron Riley, and with me, as always, my buddy, my partner, the Deep Roy of podcasting, (laughs) Ray Harris Jr. Hello. I'm not sure what that means, but thank you. You don't know who Deep Roy is, dude? No, tell me. I think that's from the original, not the remake. He was uh, the Oompa Loompa in the uh, Tim Burton remake. Gotcha. Yeah, I was just thinking, you're my Oompa Loompa. Well... You, you know, you do, you do stuff. Uh, read my notes and stuff like that. Uh, Take credit. Yeah. A <laughs> couple, of, couple of things before we get started. Um, a, um, I want to apologise for the show not being funny yet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I haven't figured out how to make it funny yet. Well, where, uh, where do you slip a dick in joke into... Um, <laughs> it came out wrong. Yeah. Uh, into literally super ex- superpowers going at each other. I don't know, but we'll fi- we'll find That's a way. Question. We, we we will. will. Find if anybody a way, can, I promise. If if anybody can, it will be us. Yes. Yeah. Um, I want to introduce a new rule uh, oh. for the series. I'm calling it the Martin Darlington rule. All right. Uh, this is for Martin Darlington. I obviously <clears throat> need to mansplain uh, everything that I say. Ma- Martin sent us an email, or sent me an email. Several. Saying yes. that <laughs> when I say stuff like, well, everybody knows that, uh, it's usually a sign that no one knows anything and I'm just <laughs> making it up or something like that. No. Um, no. I think on a previous episode I said everyone knows that World War One was started with uh, as a fraud. What I meant was that the bombing of the Lusitania. Mm-hmm. Uh, for people who don't know, one of the things that that got the U.S. into World War One was there was a passenger liner that was sailing from the U.S. to England called the Lusitania. It was bombed by German uh, submarine, mm-hmm. and both the U.K. and the U.S.A. said, oh, it was a purely innocent passenger liner, and how dare they? And uh, right. it, it was used to build up public consent, because, of course, the U.S. was Cost supposedly... Uh, right. Well, the U.S. was isolationist. It wasn't going to get involved in the war. There were, had to be reasons for them to stir the public into a frenzy. This was one of those. It was another two years before the U.S. got into the war. But the, the Lusitania is still thought of. But anyway, Germany had said, 
Well, it wasn't just a passenger liner. It had munitions. It had armaments on it. You were sending them to to the Brits, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, and so we had to we had to take it out, man, because we don't want them getting more. We are bullets. fighting the Brits exactly. And both the US and the UK said that's a lie. There were no bullets on the Lusitania, and they kept up that argument until I think it was the late nineties when. Uh, some uh, scuba divers found the right. Lusitania and it yeah. was loaded with fucking bullets <laughs> and uh, armaments. So that's what I meant when I said it was a yeah. a fraudulent episode. Yeah. Martin Darlington uh, took me to task and I had yeah. to like, mansplain that for him. So that's the Martin Darlington rule. Right. Or if I ever say, as everybody knows, Ray, right. you have to go, ah, press your buzzer right. I bought you that's on your desk now and just say, Martin Darlington, Martin Darlington. <laughs> Um, uh, his heart was in the right place, even though he was wrong. Um, and his emails were very poetic. So well, he's a, it. he's a Brit. He can't help it. Um, okay. I also <laughs> want to shout out to, I love it when people send us long emails, long, like serious, long yes. emails, challenging us on stuff. Don't Seriously. Do uh, no, no, it's fine. I like that. I like <laughs> it. It means people are listening and they're holding us to account and that's great. Yeah. Bob Sullivan sent us a good email, say a uh, big email to me saying, uh, that uh, that that it was bullshit that the U.S. Uh, had any other uh, interests in supporting the U.K. during World War Two, other than just out of the goodness of their hearts. <laughs> and um, I said, "All right, well, listen, we'll get to that in the yeah. show later on." And then he sent me an email about a week and a half later, going, "Shit, man, I just read a book, and you're right. There was all <laughs> sorts of economic interests involved." I'm I like that. Okay, so people, yeah. you know, but here's my thing, people. If you don't like something I say on the show and it rubs you up the wrong way, before yeah. you write the ten page email that I have to then read and reply to, <laughs> go, and then and then you yeah. then you read a book and then, then you come you back and apologize for writing the ten page email. Reverse read that. a book first. Yes. Go well. Camera said that. That's not what Let I learned at that school. Up. At that's not Wikipedia. That's something. not what the propaganda system has taught me in my whole life. Right. Rather than just write camera email saying you don't know what you're talking about. Right. Go read a couple of books first, then come back. And if you have alternate facts and you can prove that I'm wrong, do it by all means. Well, but listen, I don't say this shit on the show unless it, you know, I, I can back it up yeah. pretty much. Well, 99.9% of the time. Sometimes yeah. when I say more Australians in New Zealand, in Zealand has died in Gallipoli than everyone else. Okay. I was wrong on that. Cause I was shooting from the hip. Right. But you, but you fessed up. As I always do. Yeah, I always yeah. fess up. Well, I, I would like to say, um, to, to defend those people, it is much more emotionally satisfying to get on the computer. Fuck you cam and hit send and then oh, go that's... read a book because I have done it myself. So I totally get that. <laughs> I, I totally yeah, too. You have said "fuck you, Cam." And, you know. <laughs> very, very satisfying. Uh, but seriously, um, but between what you just said and how we ended the show last time, there was something I wanted to, to, to just jump into if we can just talk about it for a second. Because again, this whole good and evil thing is we want to throw that right out the window. Um, when, when America is like, okay, so we're in this war. When we get out of this war, we want to be in a really good economic position. We want to have markets opened up because we're going to need those markets. We're going to go into a recession. We're going to get into all this later. But I just want to make it clear to everybody, and this isn't just the American in me defending my country. When America makes that kind of policy, that is just completely normal politics. When America's in World War II, they're like, okay, we're in this. 
we can't get out of it. So let's get get it over with as soon as we can. Having said that, you have to think about the day after tomorrow. You have to plan for that stuff. And America already knew that they were producing more stuff than okay. their uh, yeah. Yeah, you're getting into the show, man. Like fuck, shut put up. a break okay. on it. All right, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just saying, you know, it's that's the way the world works. That's the way it works. It's not yes. evil. You'll have your chance. We will get to the right, economics of it. I hold can't. my breath until then. Take a deep breath. That's it. Take another <gasps> toke. Oh, or drink some limoncello. Whatever it is. That Homemade you're doing. limoncello. Calm the Homemade fuck limoncello. down, nigga. Okay, so a uh, couple of shout outs. I, I want to say uh, shout out to Greg Johnson and his wife May. Greg Aww. came along to Sunday Assembly. He's a big fan of the shows, long-term listener. Hi, Greg. I'll throw uh, another friend of mine from Sunday Assembly, Catherine Harris, has started listening to the show. She's got to drive from Brisbane to Adelaide, and she said, what should I do? And I said, listen to the show. That's right. So she's going to listen to some shows. So hi, Catherine. Yes. She's lovely. Hello. And I also want to thank Joffrey Horta Antonio for yes. our uh, opening music again. He also provided the music for the Alexander series. Awesome. Uh, yes, our um, uh, I think he's from Barcelona, one mm-hmm. of the greatest composers of music on the planet today. So thank you, Joffrey. Every time I listen to the that music, I'm like, hell, man, that's, that's awesome. Right. <laughs> yeah, I listen to it when, I, right. when I read. Mm. I, I listen to it when I read very um, just awesome stuff. Mm. Where Porn, lit novels, yeah. Dun, 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 dun. Anyway, now, where were we? Okay, let's, let's get into this. Let's so, slip into this. We're still doing the build-up to Yalta Conference episodes. Yes. We, you know, we've done our bios, right. Churchill, right. Stalin, and FDR. Yep. Um, what I want to do is talk about some of the baggage that th- these three guys had mm-hmm. when they met at Yalta in early 1945 to discuss... Yeah. Who was going to run the world after World War Two? Right. You really, I think, to understand how the Cold War started, you really have to understand the pre-existing tensions between these guys. Nearly thirty years of baggage between their nations <laughs> yeah. that yeah. the three men had pretty much directly taken part in building. Mm-hmm. Not that they had inherited the baggage, but they had all been a little bit involved. Yeah. In uh, creating the the relationship between the USSR, the UK, and the USA, uh, notice they all start with the letter U. Yes, what a mm. conspiracy! Mm. No, but I just want to say after you listen to the, whenever we get to this or whenever we finish this part, the Cold War or the beginning of the Cold War is going to make so much more sense. You're like you're going to be like, oh, how could it not be some kind of Cold War after World War II? I mean, these guys are coming at each other. They absolutely do not trust each other, and they have very valid reasons for not trusting each other. Now, as far back as 1918. Mm-hmm. The UK and the USA, along with a couple of other countries, Japan, France, uh, invaded Russia. Hmm. Now, bet you, bet you didn't know that, did you, kids? Yeah, and whenever I've mentioned this on Facebook uh, over the last <laughs> couple like, of years, what? people have gone, what? They did not. I go, go Fuck read a book. Yeah, yeah. Just yeah. go read a book. <laughs> um, it's not very well known, and it wasn't a massive deal, I right. guess, for, right. from the perspective, particularly just coming out of World War One. Right. Uh, people had other things to think about. But uh, it happened, and you know, I don't think the Russians were very happy about it. 
I don't think uh, no. the, the Bolsheviks <laughs> very happy about the fact that these countries invaded theirs for a number of reasons, but one of them was to put down the revolution. Yeah, when you end up attacking a certain group within a country and that group ends up obtaining power, they're going to remember that shit for years to come. So, yeah, we, we allies screwed up on that one. So after the Russian Revolution in 1917, uh, a quick background for people who don't know the story. Uh, There was a revolution in early February 1917. It was sort of a spontaneous revolution, really. People just went on strike and, you know, the country was suffering from being in World War I. It was run by the Tsars, uh, Nicholas II. Mm -hmm. People were like, you know what, fuck you, we're not doing this anymore. They basically had a sit-down revolution. Um, Yeah. And there was uh, an interim government put in place that was led by a number of different socialist parties. Uh, And then a lot of the the Bolshevik leaders, guys like Lenin, Stalin, Trotsky, weren't in the country at the time. They were in exile. They came rushing back. Again, this is in the middle of World War I, rushing back to the country to, to play a part in the revolution that happened without them. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then... Six or seven months later, in October 1918, uh, sorry, 1917, there was the October Revolution when the the Bolsheviks basically overthrew the interim government and the Mensheviks, who are the other uh, social, major socialist party, right. and um, took control of the of revolutionary Russia. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things that they did then in March of 1918 is they forged a treaty with the central powers of World War I, uh, which is called the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, uh, was where they said, you know what, we're getting out of the war. Yeah. Uh, we, we, don't want to be, we didn't want to be in World War I in the first place. This was the Tsars doing, uh, we, you know, you're, you're, you're invading our country. Yeah. We've, we're running out of money. We're broke. You know what? They went, right. like a... And they're out. Now, okay. you can talk. No, I just want to say, um, j- just, just real quick, sorry, sorry. The economic collapse in Russia was so bad, to, their, um, their uh, economy had shrunk by two-fifths. It was actually worse than what America is going to go through in the Great Depression. So, yeah, so not only do they have millions dead, their economy is just on the ropes, and they just need to get out of this. And they're going to make great concessions to Germany to get out of it. They're going to give up a lot of territory. But to the Bolshe- um, to the uh, Mensheviks, uh, this is just worth it, and they're going to get out completely, no matter what they have to give up, because they want to focus on finishing off their revolution that they've been fighting for years for, for at least um, at least 20 years. The Mensheviks or the Bolsheviks? Uh, well, the Mensheviks, Mensheviks took over, and then they're going to lose, and then the Bolsheviks are going to take over. Well, the Bolshevik, yeah, Mensheviks have already lost. Yeah, I mean, okay. they still got a civil war to fight, but yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, they, they their economy shrunk massively. They lost about three million people, the Russians in World War One, more than the Germans and the British combined. Damn. Um, now, the place where it was signed, this treaty, uh, Brest-Litovsk, uh, is in modern Belarus on the border of Poland. Cool. Um, and here's something you may not know, Ray: Litovsk mm-hmm. in Polish means great. So uh, the city was literally called Great Boobs, and uh, it gets pretty Road hot. Trip. 
in yeah. Brest-Litovsk, oh, around about 37 Celsius or 98 Fahrenheit in the middle of we, summer. We so if you're there in the middle of summer, you see a pretty girl with a great rack past and you yell out, hot boobs! <laughs> it's, actually, it's actually okay. It's factually correct. That's right. Because uh, hot, great boobs. That's right. Because uh, <laughs> You're welcome, young men, by the way. And that none of that is true. Don't, no, don't, don't do that. Don't, don't, do don't that. go to Brest in yeah. Belarus and walk down the street and say, hot, great boobs. <laughs> please. Pro- probably leave, not. Okay. Or if you do, leave us out of it. Yeah. Yeah, please. Don't blame us. Um, yeah. Okay, you talk. Yeah. So, so again, this is amazing because I did not know any of this in great detail. So, so um, the was it the British and the French? They they're begging Wilson to look. You got to help us send people into Russia uh, because we the things aren't going the way that we want them to. So Russia is folding in on itself. It looks like the uh, the communists are going to win. They're going to pull out, and uh, we need the war to keep going. And America, Wilson's sitting going, no, this is really not a good idea. We've already committed to the war. Russia's huge. There's no way we could possibly contribute anything uh, that would make a difference. But then, um, even though his military advisors agree with him, it turns out that the United States has almost a billion dollars worth of equipment in Russia because they've been giving um, supplies, guns, trains. They've been laying down tracks ever since 1914. So Wilson's like... You know, someone tells them if the Russians, if the communists win, they're going to nationalize all that stuff and you're not going to get any of it back. So, again, as we've said a billion times before, money makes the world go around. So Wilson's like, OK, so I'm in. So in July of 1918, he is going to send about 5000 men who were supposed to go to uh, Britain uh, to Archangel in Western Northwestern uh, Russia. And so the plan is they're going to land an Archangel be under British control because the British and the French are already there fighting the Bolsheviks. They're going to, they're going to march down. This is like 600 miles uh, north of Moscow. So they are going to march down, attack the Bolsheviks, push them away from the area so they can start to begin, uh, begin landing more troops and more supplies there and really take the fight to the Bolsheviks. So the problem is the Americans get there. They're under British control. They actually do well for about six weeks. They're all young. They're all fresh. They haven't been fighting. So they pu- they're they able to push the Bolsheviks, who have been fighting for quite some time. Uh, they're able to push them south uh, for about six weeks. But then winter comes. It comes a lot earlier than what everybody thought it was going to. It also is a very severe winter. So the Americans are pretty much just determined to survive the winter. Their fighting is over. They are just not used to these kind of conditions. The Bolsheviks, however, are used to these kind of conditions, so they go on a counteroffensive, and they're able to push back the Americans almost all the way to the coast, killing roughly 200 of them um, as they go back. So by the time winter is about to be over, so the Russians push the Americans back, and by the time they push them back, World War I is officially over, and the Americans are like, what in the fuck are we still fighting for? Why are we fighting? We've got 5,000 men in this giant country. Makes absolutely no sense, so their morale starts going down. So the newspapers hear about this back in the United States, and they start writing a whole bunch of articles. They put pressure on the White House, and I think it's June of next year of, uh, of 1919, the Americans who are in northwestern Russia are going to be evacuated. The whole thing was a clusterfuck. They lost anywhere from two to 300 men, lost even more equipment. The whole thing was just 
uh, a horrible experience. You have an undefined war, no chance of winning with a whole bunch of limitations. Does that sound like anything that's going on uh, today? But anyway, so, so it's a clusterfuck. But the Bolsheviks are going to remember this, that they were invaded and fought by Britain, France, and America. There's also a separate war, which we can go into detail or not, that's going on uh, in Siberia. It's, it's even worse. It's even a larger clusterfuck. Even more Americans die. And the general there, General Graves, literally has both hands tied behind his back. He's not allowed to do anything, but he's supposed to somehow safeguard a billion dollars worth of U.S. equipment. It's not going to happen. He keeps battling this one local guy called uh, Semenov, uh, who has been sent over by the Russians. But again, he's allowed to defend himself, but he's not really allowed to fight. He's just there to guard the American stores. So it's a, it's a complete clusterfuck. It makes no sense. It's a waste of time. He is going to have eventually just get tired of this all, send his men back to Vladivostok and sit there and go, no, this is a, this is fucked up. We're going home. And during all of this fighting or non-fighting or the standing off, uh, standoffs, whatever you want to call them, the whites and the reds have been fighting. But because of the whites, the, excuse me, the reds, the Bolsheviks, people like Lenin and Stalin, they are better organized and they're more ruthless and they're more determined. So even though they didn't start out well at first, over time, they're able to take the fight to the whites, and they eventually win. And so the Americans literally leave on both sides of this gigantic country. Complete waste of time. They've lost men and their prestige. And the Bolsheviks are going to remember this. So after this, every country on this planet is going to acknowledge the Bolshevik government of the USSR, except for America. America refuses to acknowledge their existence. All right. Well, that was a really interesting uh, explanation, Ray, but uh, you didn't really explain why the Allies were sending troops in there in the first place. Well, America was doing it because they were pressured by the British and the French, and they had a shit ton of supplies in there they didn't want to lose, but please add on to that. Well, the official objectives... Oh, the official, I'm sorry. ...of sending troops... And it wasn't, as I said before, it wasn't just England and the US. It was uh, Japan, Czechoslovakia, Greece, France, and Italy, and a handful of other nations went in. Uh, it's known as the Northern Russian Expedition or the Archangel Campaign or the Merman Deployment. Um, but uh, the official objectives were to prevent Allied war material stockpiles falling into Bolshevik or German hands. Again, World War mm -hmm. One is still going on. Right. Or um, they also wanted to mount an offensive to rescue the Czech Legion. There was this large uh, legion from Czechoslovakia that was stranded on the Trans-Siberian Railroad when this treaty was signed, and they wanted to go and save them, give them some backup so they could get out of the country. But they also wanted to defeat the Red Army and stop the spread of communism. And uh, by the way, do you know why it's called the Red Army? Do you know why communists are called Reds? Because um, Purple Rain had not been invented yet. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Nailed it. Yeah. Uh, red, in the workers' movement, red symbolized the blood shed in the struggle against oppression. So that's why ah, commies are known Symbolism. as Reds. Yeah. Gotcha. Anyway. So as you say, it was a big clusterfuck. Um, but one of the reasons is the point I wanted to make was they wanted to defeat the Bolsheviks, the communist revolution in Russia, reinstate 
either the interim government or probably the bourgeoisie czarist government. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's that's going to be important for a bunch of reasons as we move on. But I found this um, a great article. I, I got a subscription to newspapers.com, mm. which if you've never had a look at it, it's fantastic. There's like 120 million newspapers that they have scanned and indexed from around wow. the world, you can go, going right back to like the 18th century. Um, and this is one of the things about doing this show that's, A, amazing, but also, B, completely frustrating is the fact that there is so much video footage and archives yes. of these guys and newspapers yes. and not to mention the millions of books. Like when we, I go into research mode with this, I could just get lost for weeks and weeks and weeks on this stuff. But this is from the Detroit Free Press from 1933. It had a story called After 15 Years, Survivors of the Polar Bear Expedition, which was what the U.S. expedition into Russia was called, are mm-hmm. still wondering why. And they, they, they interview some of the survivors. And um, right. this article says, No war ever was declared, nor was a peace signed. They simply yeah. started to fight when they got there and continued to do so through the long winter and spring that followed. They were good soldiers, so they followed orders and fought battles that for strangeness and horrors equal any that took place on the Western Front. But they would like to have known why. Why, through the long winter, they fought and wondered. Fought frozen fingers, frozen toes, frozen guns, frozen rations, and the Bolsheviks, who were a long way from being frozen. Um, And then later on it says, Oh yes, it was said that the Allies had shipped to the Imperial Government of Russia before the Revolution 600,000 tonnes of war materials and supplies and 600,000 tonnes of coal and that it had been feared that Soviets would turn them over to the Central Powers after the signing of the peace treaty between the Soviets and Germany. The troops had been sent up to Archangel to guard those supplies, but when they got there, the supplies were gone. (gasps) Gasp! The troops got a few of those supplies back, though, some through capture, but mostly one bullet or shell at a time fired from guns that had been made by their own countrymen back in the United States. (laughs) A little too, little late. late. I I love that line. Uh, And then it was said that Allied agents had worked up counter-revolutionary movements in North Russia and that the troops had been committed to stay and protect the new white Russian government against the Bolsheviks. That was all Mm -hmm. the explanation there was, and it didn't adequately uh, answer the question, why? Right. Yeah. If if I could if I could add something just to give everybody another taste of Stalin's mentality. So so as far as the fighting in the north uh, northeast of Russia and Siberia, um, where General Graves was was hit with his eight thousand men, um, there was one guy there named Semenov who was at first fighting for the Tsar and then he's fighting for Kerensky, the provisional government, and then he starts backing another guy called Kolchak. Um, so he sets up his regime, and, I, and remember, it's just a complete clusterfuck of a civil war. So at some point, the Czech, the Czech legions uh, that you were talking about, they get their hands on Kolchak, and the Bolsheviks have got them surrounded, and they say, okay, we've been asking you, do you want to leave? And you keep saying yes, but we're asking you for your weapons, and you won't give them to us. How about this? You give us Kolchak, and this is under orders of Stalin, you give us Kolchak, and we'll let you go, because he's trying to set up his own government, you know, trying to do what the Bolsheviks are doing. So the, so the Czechs are very happy with this, so they give him away, and of course, obviously, he disappears. It's one more 
person that Stalin doesn't have to worry about Stalin and Lenin. But the but the guy uh, Semenov who had been using everybody, he was getting money from the China, uh, Jap- Japanese, from the British, from the Russians. He was getting money from everybody. He was fighting everybody. He had his own little kingdom set up right just above uh, Mongolia. And after this all fades away, after this is all settled, he has to hide because the Bolsheviks are looking for him. He hides until 1946 when Stalin's men finally find him. And they had been looking for him all this time through World War II uh, excuse me, through uh, the period between World War One, World War Two, World War Two, and they finally catch him in 1946, 46, and they kill him. But just to show you, Stalin had men looking for him ever since uh, 1919 because he had betrayed the Bolsheviks. So you don't mess around with Stalin. He will find you and he will kill you. Good story. So as you say, uh, the this whole... Um Invasion became very unpopular both in the US and in the UK. Uh, in January 1919, the Daily Express claimed the frozen plains of Eastern <laughs> Europe are not worth the bones of a single grenadier. And uh, in April 1919, the, the Allies decided to leave. Several years after the American troops were withdrawn, the new president, Warren G. Harding, called the expedition a mistake and blamed the Wilson tradition. Um, You know, in that long tradition of uh, incoming presidents blaming wars that they find themselves in on the previous administrations. Nothing new about that. (laughs) But the point of covering all of this, what has this got to do with the Cold War? Well, during this period, uh, Winston Churchill was the Minister of Munitions from 1917 and then in 1919 became Secretary of State for War and Air. Uh, Stalin, as you've mentioned, was part of the Politburo during this time. He was part of the inner Mm -hmm. circle of the Bolshevik leadership. And Roosevelt, not directly involved as such, but he was Assistant Secretary of the Navy under President Wilson during this time. So not directly involved, probably, although he probably did have something to do with sending troops over uh, there and and protection of some sort by the Navy. But all three of these guys, when they meet in Yalta, however many years later, 30-odd years later... You know, they've got all of the, so their their relationship goes back between the three of them, not to mention their countries and this 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 distrust. Because one right. one of the things that drives Stalin during the Cold War, before and during the Cold War, is this real, very real fear that he has that comes out of Marxism and certainly was adopted by Lenin and inherited by Stalin. That this fear that the capitalist powers would try and crush the socialist slash communist revolution. He be- he always believed that, uh, and he believed it to insane, paranoid levels, yes. which you know was partly used as a as a justification and and, and, a, and a rationalization excuse for his great purges. But this idea that the capitalists were going to come and try and overthrow the revolution, but there was good reasons for believing that, as we'll cover when we get to a, a later section. So anyway, that is the 1917-19. Now, around about the same time in the USA, there was the first Red Scare in 1919 and 1920. 
Well, I just I just appreciate the fact as an American that the the uh, the American workers during the Great War, 1914 to 1918, they chose not to strike, even though they wanted their wages to go up because inflation was going up. They chose not to strike because, you know, the war effort, you know, protect our boys and you know, that kind of stuff, which good for them. However, after World War One ends, there's more than 3000 strikes within the United States. There's the formation, excuse me, <clears throat> the formation of the uh, Communist Labor Party, which is financially supported by the Bolsheviks. Um, President Wilson's attorney general, Mitchell Palmer, um, and we'd really like to thank him um, because he's the one who's going to help start the FBI under J. Edgar Hoover. And they're going to go after these communists. They're going to raid any places that they meet. They're going to deport Russian citizens. They're going to ignore the laws of the land. And they are just going to hound these people. So, again, there is a communist element in, in the United States. It is being organized and financially supported by Moscow, if you will. And the Americans know this and they the government, anyway, is just pissed that this is going on because this should not be happening in America. The last thing we are is communists, and they take it personally. So, again, from Wilson all the way to FDR, none, no, none of the American presidents are going to acknowledge the existence of the Bolshevik government in the USSR. USSR. Everybody else does, and we'll trade with them because America is all about money, but we will not officially acknowledge their existence. I don't even think there was much trade between the revolution and 33 was there i think that's one of the reasons uh, it, it it got it, it increased over time but it was certainly slow and haphazard at first and it was obviously totally nothing to do with the government it was just private business but again uh the government is like uh i don't see you i don't hear you i don't smell you you do not exist which is kind of like what we do with cuba but the rest of the world had acknowledged moscow so it was kind of silly that we did not i know there was a little bit of black market stuff i remember reading armand hammer's uh memoirs gee 25 years ago he talked about how mm -hmm. He uh, took a, a ship full of medical supplies. He was taking medical supplies over to Russia just after the revolution and um, then emptying his ship, and they said, well, we don't have any money. And he said, well, what do you have? And they oh, go, shit. well, we've got these Fabergé eggs and paintings from the Kremlin. Yeah, all right, I'll take those. He'd go, <laughs> yeah, back, he'd go back to the U.S. with ships full of <laughs> priceless <laughs> artworks. Yeah. And did that like a Some bunch of times. That's uh, made his made his Jesus. second million, I think, doing that in nineteen nineteen. Anyway, yeah. I want to I want to provide a bit more background. Obviously, Ray just gave you the Cliff Notes version of the Red Scare. Now, let me actually what I do. flesh it out because <laughs> this whole thing about Red Scares and the Red Terror is is really really fascinating and important to understand again about the the relationship between the USA in particular and the USSR. So it started back, as Ray said, after World War I, the uh, industrial workers of the world backed several labor strikes in 1916 and 1917, and this drove the American uh, political and uh, corporate elite crazy. The press portrayed these strikes as radical threats to American society inspired by left-wing foreign agent provocateurs. Uh, one, side, one political scientist called it a nationwide, he's talking about the press's response here, a nationwide mm -hmm. anti-radical hysteria provoked by a mounting fear and anxiety that a Bolshevik revolution in America was imminent, a revolution that would change church, home, marriage, civility, and the American way of life. But even mm. before 
uh, all of this happened. Um, around about 1918, President Wilson had pressured Congress into legislating the Sedition Act of 1918. It was an anti-immigrant, anti-anarchist uh, act designed to be able to deport undesirable political people. Um, it was actually a set of amendments to the uh, Espionage Act of 1917, but it goes all the way back to 1798. John Adams, I think, was the second president after Washington. Um, I did watch the miniseries starring Paul Giamatti a few years ago. Have Washington, you seen that? Adams, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe. No, I haven't seen that. Oh, really good. Go back and go watch it. Good? it oh, yeah. Paul Giamatti, man. He's great. I like him. I just wasn't sure... Yeah. Yeah, no, it's really, really, really good. Chrissy and I both watched it. Um, friends of ours, Tony Coniston lent it to us. You know, Tony. And, Tony. Um, <laughs> and uh, there was a whole bunch of stuff about, you know, the, those guys, the founding fathers that, that I didn't know. It was really interesting. Cool. Anyway, he signed into law in 1798 the Alien and Sedition Act. Um, it stated that people or countries cannot say negative things about the government or the war. Um, and so the, this Espionage and the Sedition Act built on top of that. It forbade the use of uh, disloyal, profane, scurrilous or abusive language mm. about the United States government, its flag or its armed forces, or that caused others to view the American government or its institution with contempt. Uh, really? Law wow. Professor David Cole says that President Wilson's act, um, oh, his federal government consistently targeted alien radicals, deporting them for their speech or associations, making little effort to distinguish true threats from ideological dissidents. Most U.S. newspapers were not only supportive of the act, they seemed actually to lead the movement in behalf of its speedy enactment. The Washington Post right. at the time said, there is no time to waste on hair splitting over the infringement of liberty. As an American, how do you feel about acts being passed that say, look, you can't speak negatively about the government or the army? Jeez. Um, yeah, that's going... Well, here's my thing. History shows that if you're securing yourself, you let people talk, they blow off steam... There's no bruises on you. Move about your business. If it's gotten to the point where no one's allowed to say anything bad that might hurt your feelings, you're just stupid and going way, way too far. I remember when the the first Bush was in pres uh, when it was in office and we had flag man. He was like, "Oh, you can't touch a flag. You can't, you know, do this to the flag. You can't burn the flag. You can't desecrate the flag." And it, I don't know. It was just it just rubbed me the wrong way. It's like real patriotism isn't, you know, you're worried about what every little tiny thing someone says, because you're going to have an ulcer by the time you're 35. Just be secure in who you are as a country or person and just fuck the world. But it, that, that kind of stuff always bothered me. According to the Lincoln Star in Nebraska, uh, lectures, preachers, professors, or teachers were forbidden to make statements before any audience in a church schoolroom or other gathering or quote from any sermon, lecture or other address or from printed publications, matter of a sedis seditious character or expressions mm -hmm. of disloyalty to the United States government. They are also forbidden to suggest or encourage resistance to governmental authority or its activities in the interest of the national defense. 
Are they going to put a cop in every church? The penalties were uh, jail time uh, that was, I think, between five and 20 years. Shit. Uh, those convicted under the act. So, you know, this was going on uh, and, and it was driven in by this fear of uh, radicalism, uh, mm-hmm. in, both during the war trying to stop uh, 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 the the American military establishment from being able to fight in World War One, or trying to convince people not to join the army or to to get out right. of the war, um, and then what happened after the war is there was a number of bomb threats. There was terrorism in the United States mm-hmm. in April nineteen nineteen. Uh, the the U.S. authorities discovered a plot for mailing thirty six bombs. <laughs> to prominent members of the U.S. political and economic establishment, including J.P. Morgan, John D. Rockefeller, Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, uh, and U.S. Attorney uh, General Alexander Mitchell Palmer, who you mentioned earlier, various other immigration officials. Um, They discovered this before it went down, so that was okay. But then a few months later, June of 1919, June 2nd, in eight cities, eight bombs simultaneously exploded. They'd been sent to mm. government officials who had endorsed anti-sedition laws and the deportation of immigrants. Damn. Yeah. But again, those people, those people that you mentioned, I, I seriously doubt if they open their own mail. You know, I mean, you're, you're going to hurt someone. You're going to hurt some lackey. But again, I guess it's the point of well, terrorizing had- those who sponsor. <laughs> Yeah, legislation. They probably still had Negro servants opening their mail. Probably did. Probably Uh, did. So you're hurting the wrong people, dumbasses. Yeah, well, here's the thing. None of the people that they were sent to actually died. Um, I think there was uh, one one bomber died uh, when the bomb blew up (laughs) when it shouldn't have. But here's the thing. Right. None of this, none of these, uh, either the, the 36 bombs or the eight bombs that actually went off, were the work of communists or socialists. Mm. This was the work of Luigi Galliani, who was an Italian anarchist um, and so had nothing to do with, with you know, the Bolsheviks or communism or socialism, right. but that's not going to stop them rounding up the communists on the no. pretext that, they well, they were probably supportive of it, yeah. if nothing else. Yeah. Um, so one uh, one of the targets of the eight bombs, as I said, was uh, Attorney General Palmer's house. Where this is the one where the explosion actually killed the bomber, who was another Italian American radical. This one, uh, a guy from Philadelphia. So afterwards, Palmer orders the U.S. Justice Department to launch the Palmer raids, uh, mm. which go from 1919 to 1921. They were a series of raids intended to capture, arrest, and deport radical leftists. From the United States. Now they're called raids. I like this. If, you know, when these things happen in the USSR, they're called purges, right? Uh, <laughs> which is actually was it's, yeah, there was a term in the Bolshevik Party when they got rid of uh, uh, people from the Bolshevik ranks that they didn't think were loyal enough. They were called purging mm-hmm. the party. But then it generally came to mean whenever they rounded up people who weren't loyal. Uh, it was right. purges, but in, but when we talk about it in the US, we call them raids, which to me is a lot less 
uh, emotionally explosive yeah. terminology Sanitize. that purges Sanitize, yeah. that's right. But yeah. uh, here's the thing. It's interesting to me that it's going on in the U.S. at the same time it's going on in Russia, even before, really. I mean, this is the, still the civil wars going on in Russia during this time. Uh, later on, it happens in under Stalin, where he rounds up anyone he doesn't think is loyal to the regime. And we hear a lot mm-hmm. about that. Oh, well, under... Under Stalin, in either in the USSR or under Soviet-controlled East Germany, people would just come and round you up and put you in prison if you weren't loyal. Disappear. Yeah, right. if, if you didn't move. But we don't... How often do we hear about the fact that this happened in the United States uh, right. in, in you know the early part of the 20th century as well? And as you said, um, the guy in charge of the Palmer Raids, 24-year-old J. Edgar Hoover... Um, mm. He was uh, Cross appointed. Crossdresser extraordinary. <laughs> I was going to say he, he was when he was appointed at twenty four. Nobody, nobody twenty four should be in charge of anything except for James T. Kirk. I'm sorry, but that's how I feel. <laughs> in uh, 1919, to head a new division of the Justice Department's Bureau of Investigation, uh, mm-hmm. the it was known as the um, the new division was called the General Intelligence Division, the GID. It was also known as the Radical Division because mm. it was radical, man. Um, and I was going to say, yeah, he accepted it wearing a nice new skirt and a pair of high heels. Uh, and then on the November the 7th, 1919, at 9 p.m., the date was chosen because it was the second anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution. Agents of the... Uh, GID, the General Intelligence Division, together with local police, mm. executed a series of extremely violent raids uh, in 12 cities against mostly the Union of Russian Workers. Now, the URW was an anarchist political association of Russian immigrants living in the United States. And again, Russians had nothing to do with the yeah. bombings. With the bombings, right. Nothing at all to do with it. It was Italian anarchists but that doesn't matter once you no. once you get permission to round once up you get going that's right <laughs> that's right um the the first and only mistake our government has ever made <laughs> never made a single mistake no, ever nothing since. like that before ever no. exactly uh about ten thousand people were arrested during the palmer raids three and a half Damn. thousand were held in detention uh, of course, and this was a bit like Gitmo. I mean, there, there weren't any charges laid. There was no proof. Right. There, there was round them up. Yeah, just round, yeah. round them up, throw them in jail, and uh, rough them up a little bit. Um, about only about five hundred of these ten thousand that were arrested were eventually deported. A report in um, a New York newspaper at the time recounted the scene of these raids in November 1919. A witness of the event said that he saw one of the Russians trying to rush out of the building, his face and clothing covered with blood. Agonized cries were heard. One who was close to the scene while the raiders were covering themselves with the blood of men and women against whom no crime had been charged heard heavy thuds Mm. as of clubs descending on human flesh. All who attempted to escape were driven back into the building and none but officers were permitted to enter. Two reporters who attempted to gather the facts of the assault were threatened with arrest if they did not leave at once. One policeman on the stoop of the building shouted to the crowd that had collected outside, If there's a soldier among you, get after them! 
They were beaten not only with clubs but with blackjacks. Um, no one had 21, so they all had to keep going back to the deal. Uh, no, what a blackjack. It's like something. <laughs> it's a flat. It's a the flat leather thing with a piece of wood or metal on the inside on the end of it. You, it narrows down. It's like a tear. And you, it's, you hold the, narrow, the smaller end and then you just, you know. Heavy. Something really heavy wrapped in leather. Yeah, 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 yeah. After the police. Not, yeah. not what we used in Vegas. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, you beat me with something then. But, uh, <laughs> it was black at the end of it. but uh, You forgot well, the safety word. It's not my fault you forgot the safety words. It was dark brown. I would have black. <laughs> some, with some, Whatever. With some red. That wasn't the safety word either. <laughs> After, after the police and other guardians of law had their fill of clubbing and blackjacking, it was great. They went out clubbing and blackjacking. They went to play some blackjack and did some clubbing. Went to some clubs. Happens, some clubs. happens in Vegas every night. They crowded the Russians together in the back of the hall and cross-examined them. Then they bandaged the heads of those who had suffered more than others, but even the bandages were heavily bloodstained. Meanwhile, Jeez. patrol wagons, which had been stationed in the neighborhood, came clanging up and were filled as fast as they appeared with the Russians who had been beaten up. Most of them had their heads bandaged. They were thrown down steps of the stoop without ceremony. One of them moaned loudly and the crowd outside mimicked him. The crowd was not permitted to approach too closely and a reporter was unable to see what marks had been made by the clubs of the police on the faces of the assaulted men and women. Jeez. Now, I should say this newspaper report was from a socialist paper called the New York Call. And mm -hmm. what's really interesting, again, with if you get this newspapers.com subscription and you go back and you look at all of the socialist, communist, worker party papers that existed in the first half of the 20th century in the United right. States and in the UK. You know, you, whereas today the newspapers obviously are owned by a handful of, you know, rich guys. Murdoch, Jeff Bezos now owns the Washington Post, as Donald Trump's been making a big deal out of recently. Um, who, you know, your you rich corporate media is not going to cover these sorts of issues. And, and in fact, didn't right. back then, you know, um, as I said before, the, the big mainstream rich guy owned press at the time was supportive of the Sedition Act and of the Palmer raids. But it's yeah. interesting because back then you actually had uh, left newspapers as well, progressive papers, socialist papers that would give you the other side of the story, and then they all got wiped out. And so that that does that kind of media doesn't really exist outside of being online these days. Perhaps some you know some small yeah. scale socialist newspapers or newsletters and that kind of thing. Uh, if I yeah, uh, yeah, I've got more to go on this this whole period, but uh, jump in. Yeah. Oh, no, I was just going to say for everybody who might be freaking out right now, you've got to remember this is the end at a war. We you know we've lost some people. Um, and, and now this entire this huge country, the largest country in the world, Russia, has been taken over by communists. So any actions inside the United States, whether they're real or perceived, but if they're perceived to be the work of communists, the American re uh, reaction is going to be fear and anger because we don't want to happen what what's good what happened over there happened over here so you just got to you just got to keep that in mind they weren't just out of the blue going oh let's get the communists they had a specific they thought they had a specific reason to be fearful and therefore to be angry at these people who were trying to take over their government and take over their way of life they weren't but that was the perception at the time and the and what was going on in Russia certainly supported that kind of fear but did it 
I mean, what what's the real fear here? Yeah, well, no, I mean, you're absolutely right when you're saying when the rich guys, look, the rich guys who own everything, look, we don't want anything to change. We like everything the way it is. So if you people are going to strike, you're going to mess up my bottom line. You're going to mess up my profits. You're messing up everything I've done. So if I can spin this in any way, if I can label this in any way, and I can just crack on your head and make you go back to make you go back to the assembly line or to, or to work so I can keep making my money, I will do that. Um, and so I totally get your point that the rich are totally supportive and this is a poor man's fight. But as far as the average American, w- whether they want to support these kind of people or not, they're probably looking over Russia and going, hey, that happened over here. Let's make sure it doesn't happen over here. It happened over there. Let's make sure that doesn't happen over here, even though they're totally misinformed. Mm. Well, yeah, we'll talk more about the ideology behind this, I guess, as we yeah. move through. Yeah. I want to I want to wrap up this episode though because we're nearly hitting an hour. So then, in June of 1920, uh, a decision by the Massachusetts District Court Judge George Anderson denounced the Department of Justice's actions. He wrote that a mob is a mob, whether made up of government officials acting under instructions from the Department of Justice or of criminals and loafers and the vicious classes. And Good for him. this decision shut down any future Palmer raids. And I guess that is one difference of the American system versus what was happening or what continued to happen in the USSR for the next 50, 60 years is, yeah. you know, the, the executive branch and Congress and the Senate could run around and go crazy and create, you know, the the, the Hoover gangs but then you had the judicial branch that could come in and go, no, what? Fucking stop. That's that's this right. is not right. So you had these these counterbalances. And in fact, if if you grab um if you want to know more about Hoover, I highly recommend Tim Weiner's book on the FBI. Tim Weiner, who wrote two terrific books in the last sort of ten years, one on the CIA and one on the FBI. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist from the New York Times wrote these massive uh, overviews of these two organizations. And uh, I remember reading the FBI one. He just talks about everything that Hoover ever did pretty much tried to get shut down. The, the, when, when it got in front of a Supreme Court, the Supreme Court would be going, no, no, this, you can't do this, stop <laughs> it. And Hoover would be like, really? Oh, okay, we'll stop. All right, sorry. And then he would keep doing it, and then it would end up yeah. back in the Supreme Court in five years. And they'd go, we told you to stop. This is Jeez. not constitutional. Oh, I can't just round people up. and I can't, ju- I can't just bug <laughs> their homes and round them up and beat them. Right. No, you can't. Oh, sorry. Okay. And then he would keep doing it. Like constantly. That was Hoover's entire career j- just and, and got away with it for like 60 years. Anyway. That's insane. Recommend we'll, we'll we'll get to more of him as the series progresses. So um, he shut that down. But then on September first, nineteen twenty, Wall Street was bombed. Mm-hmm. Um, it was Osama bin Laden. No, wait, that was later. <laughs> Different, slightly. Mm. Uh, Thirty-eight people died. One hundred and forty-one were injured. Now mm. they suspected anarchists and communists, but they never found out who was responsible. Which wow. is uh, interesting. Pretty good, pretty good planning. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, some people have wondered, uh, a bit like people wonder about things like 9-11, was it a false flag operation? Was it Hoover's men that bombed it? Right. 
in order to create more fear and terror. Uh, this is a couple of months after the Palmer raids got shut down. Another thing happened. We don't know. There's no evidence to really support either theory. Um, <clears throat> but uh, the Sedition Act itself was repealed also in 1920. However, it was replaced 20 years later by the Alien Registration Act, a.k.a. the Smith Act of 1940, uh, which included criminal penalties for advocating the overthrow of the U.S. government. Uh, it was signed into law by FDR. Somebody knocking at your door there? Someone want to come in? Um, it- someone upstairs is um, wrestling or something. I don't know. A gator? Hopefully they're okay. Wrestling a, a gator? gator. Exactly. A gator. Exactly. I thought it was I Heather making a booty black call. Bears. Yeah. No. <laughs> you know, that hurts. I was, was going to say, uh, if, if you need eight seconds to go and... <laughs> whoa, whoa. What am I going to do with the other four seconds? No, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> Uh, signed into law by FDR in 1940, criminal penalties for advocating the overthrow of the U.S. government. And remember, mm-hmm. the U.S. wasn't at war in 1940, so this was a peacetime act. Right. Now, the amazing thing to me, I mean, among many amazing things, is the, the U.S. itself was the result of an armed revolution overthrowing a government. Yeah, exactly. I've been meaning to bring that up. So the USSR gets started when they fight and they win. The United States gets started with when we fight with France's help and we kick the shit out, or not, we we didn't really kick the shit out of the British. We we fought them enough so they would just leave us alone so we could start our own government. This co- this this country, this nation, this government was formed in the fires of warfare, just like the USSR. But again, like you said before, it's it's good. When we do it, it's noble. Hell is probably the, 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 the will of God. But when other people do it, it's not the same. But even more than that, like Americans celebrate the fact that yeah, they... Yeah, hot dogs and cookouts. I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, you celebrate. It's, it's a national religion, the fact that you overthrew the British and established your yeah. own government, that you had this revolution, a great Woo! and glorious bloody revolution. You idolize and worship guys like Washington and Adams and, you know, the rest of the mm-hmm. founding fathers that were responsible for this blood right. sh- bloody, you know, uh, uh, war. And yet yeah. then you turn around a couple of hundred years later and go, well, you can't advocate the overthrow of the government. That's That would be wrong. You can't. Right. You can't. Uh, it's a one-off. Yeah. It's a one-off. We can do it, but no, yeah, no. But see, that's just my thing. I mean, again, we've said this before. If you could take someone who who lived right in the middle of the Cold War and show them the face and face show them a Facebook post today, when George W. Bush was in the White House, I cussed his ass out every day, and I would talk to people, and I wasn't a crazy per- person walking around with strangers, but I would rip into him and find people like minded and rip into him, and that's completely okay. We even made it funny and amusing or whatever. But yeah, back then you couldn't say a darn word. Word. I mean, it's just ridiculous, and it just shows the insecurity of whoever's in charge at the time or for whatever reason. But Again, you just you just got to be able. You've got to let people talk. You've got to let people express themselves, or yeah. it is a dictatorship. I don't think it was that easy during uh, Bush's regime. No, no it was I mean, no. There was a lot of this uh, whole support was, the troops thing. Uh, Bill Maher, Bill Maher, yeah, oh yeah, lost his TV yeah. show for speaking out yeah. about nine uh, eleven. I mean, there was uh, it was still a bizarre era in the in the U.S. Uh, anyway, right. 
Now, getting back to Americans sweeping up citizens and throwing them in jail because they're perceived to be enemies of the state. And, I, mm-hmm. you know, I made the point before that we hear a lot about the communists and the fascists doing that. We don't hear about the fact that it happened in the United States as much. But I, to be fair, the numbers in America were a lot smaller. <clears throat> I mean, until World War II, when they swept up 100,000 uh, Japs, as we mentioned, FDR right. did. Even that is a lot smaller than the numbers involved, certainly in Russia and Germany. And also in America, you didn't have them all shot or gassed. So I do, I'm right, not trying helps. to say that these are equal at all, but right. the principle is there. And it's interesting that even in a democracy, there are times when our leaders want to suppress certain kinds of talk, certain kinds of conversation, even though we, suspend rights. we, we yeah. talk about civil, we talk about uh, civil rights and freedom of speech. It's all about, oh, we're all about freedom of speech. We think freedom of speech is great. It's all about freedom of speech. We criticize other countries if they don't have freedom of speech. But then whenever we don't want freedom of speech, we go, well, no, we no, sorry. Yeah. We're making an exception right now. No, other countries can't make an exception, uh, right. particularly if they're under a, a, a military threat or economic threat. Uh, yeah, but we, we can suspend it whenever we want. And even in Australia, at the moment, we have a law that says if mm-hmm. you go to visit uh, one of the concentration camps that we're running in Papua New Guinea or the island of Nauru. I don't know if you guys know this, but Australia runs a number of concentration camps. It's where we throw asylum seekers. Uh, wow. People that try and come to Australia from war-torn countries on boats, uh, we don't call them concentration camps. We call them... Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it makes a difference to them. Yeah, that's sure. We, we, we come up with nicer-sounding sanitised names for them. Uh, friendly, flowery holiday places, <laughs> we call them. Uh, never, never land. The media and the government doesn't refer to them as what they are, but they're concentration camps. Um, <clears throat> if you go to one of those because you're, let's say you're a doctor or right. you're, a, you're a, some sort of a legal uh, assistance advocate, you go to these places, where if you come back to Australia, you're not allowed to talk about anything that you saw or anything that happened. You can go to jail Damn. if you talk yeah. about what you saw in these concentration camps. So I'm not, what, you know, I'm, not, I'm not afraid of saying that Australia's fucked up in this respect as well right now. If I'm in the camp and I say this and I knock on the gate, uh, hello, uh, I changed my mind. I don't want to go to Australia. Can I leave, please? Will they let you out? <laughs> oh, they're happy to send people back to from whence they came. Gotcha. Uh, and, you know, the, the situation with the deal is, well, I, do I go back to this war-torn country where people right. want to kill me or do I stay in this shitty prison where, right. uh, you know, I've got substandard... My life is on hold. Yeah. yeah. And substandard condition, living conditions and food. No, it's got to be. Everything. Yeah. I mean, it's it's hell, but it's slightly less bad hell than the one that I just came from and risked my family's life and... Scrape together all of the fillings out of our teeth to to, to pay for to a pay for, yeah you know, a boat journey. Damn, had to you know sell my sixteen year old daughter to the captain of the ship and whatever. Right. Anyway, uh, I just want to finish this by saying that in uh, nineteen thirty nine, at its zenith, the Communist Party of the USA only had about fifty thousand members. Mm. So it wasn't huge, right? Ever, but the fear was that it would be huge. Again, and we'll see this in the next episode, lots of economic problems in the United States during the, well, from the late 19th century right through until World War II, really. Uh, 
and and there was this genuine fear and concern on behalf of the American corporate elite that people would rise up, that millions of people would join the Communist Party or the international workers or something like that, and that there would be a genuine political revolution that could change the status quo. So it wasn't big, but they were absolutely, and I've got a bunch of quotes to back this up in the next episode. Okay. So again, World War I is over with. America's got its own fear dealing with the perceived threat of communism. Um, and again, that's just to go to help explain the reasons for tension, a lot of tension between the Bolsheviks who are now in charge in, in Russia and the United States. And it's going to go on until at least 1933. There's no official acknowledgement. So again, when, like you said, when FDR and Stalin get together for the first time, that had to be an awkward handshake. And, of course, FDR's reasons for acknowledging the government are mostly... Self-centered? Yeah, they're for what? Money and self-centered. Uh, yeah, to help fight the, their common enemy. In 1933? Oh, I'm guessing it's for economics because of the Depression? Yeah, he wanted, they wanted yeah. to trade. He, yeah, he, uh, trade. I mean, he you also... Got stuff, I got stuff. You know, they both wanted to serve uh, the, the same strategic interests about limiting Japanese expansionism in Asia as far back as 33. But, right. um, you know, he was hoping that they would be able to help pull the U.S. out of the, the Great Depression, that they'd be able to, you know, develop right. more commercial interests with uh, the Soviet Union. Anyway, we'll talk more about that in the next episode. Thank you, buddy. Mm -hmm. Thank you, everybody. Oh, uh, do we? Yeah, I want to make an announcement. Yes. Yes. I also want to read a review and thank our heroes, too. I can't go without cool. doing that. Heroes. So you make the announcement, and then I'll do that. Okay. So, um, boys and girls, playtime is over. Uh, we hope you enjoyed these first couple of episodes. But uh, Daddy Guy Get Paid. Um, so this will be the last free episode. We certainly hope you sign up and continue with us uh, covering the Cold War, even though we've been covering a lot of bios and stuff like that. We are now getting into the meat of it, the beginning of it, if you will. So we certainly hope that you uh, seriously consider joining us. We hope you've enjoyed yourself so far. Uh, please come along with us and uh, listen to the story that we're gonna, that's going to go on for a long time. As we talk about this amazing story where these massive countries with incredible weapons spend decades just inches away from being at war. So we're going to try and throw in everything but the kitchen sink. So if you are interested and you want to keep up with us, please go to and sign up. Where, Cam? Uh, just to coldwar.com. Yeah. Coldwar.com. There Cold, we go. Coldwar.com. Go and uh, just register the options. I think are five, ten, and twenty bucks a month. You can pay monthly. You can pay annually. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's gonna it's gonna be a hoot, and it's yeah, it's a crazy amount of uh, uh, work to try and not screw this up. But we're gonna do our best. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, we're gonna we're gonna. Well, that's our goal. Yeah, our goal is to not screw this up. Really, that's about the best we yeah. can hope for. Exactly. Um, all right, so I do want to thank some of the new heroes. These are the people that have already signed up. They, these people you. have signed up even before we're asking them to because they're they just... They are heroes. They are our heroes, and there's I, I, there's a shit ton of them too, man. So I read a bunch last time. Let me read some of the uh, new ones since last time. 
let's see here. Martin Gannon, Lorna Crosby, Ryan Markley. Bad Yay. Shout out to Ryan. Thomas oh. Moquette. Uh, another friend of ours from Vegas. Those two guys were with us in Vegas. Jose uh, Herrero. Uh, shit, Chrissy gave me shit over pronouncing his name. Jose. Jose. <laughs> Jose. <laughs> Chrissy's been giving me all sorts of shit. David Aslanian, Matthew Pierce, Thibaut Crochon, Jeremy Hoffman, Rob Clark, Paul Keyes, Jim Petranovich, Michael Webb, Melissa Weib, Weeb, Vibe. I don't know. Sorry, all of it. Sorry, Melissa. All of it. All of it. Dan, take all of it, Melissa. Daniel Morris, <laughs> Mike Cowley, Michael Roman, Unbound Digital Marketing. That's actually somebody's name. They yeah. changed the name by Depot. Nicholas Ferrara, Grant Hewitson, Untiang Seng, Joseph Wilson, Stacey O'Connell, Luke Houghton, David Rowland, Walter Napier III, uh, Royce Filion, and Simon Hughes. They are DEFCON 1 supporters. And Thank you. And then let me get to the DEFCON 2s and 3s. DEFCON 2s, we've got... Um, Robert Sullivan, Mike Courtney, Victor Santochi, and Joseph McIver, uh, and uh, DEFCON 3, the awesomest wow. level of support. We want to mm-hmm. thank Sean Campbell and Nick Duncan. Yeah. If we ever meet them, they actually get tongue from us. <laughs> I'm just saying. You've met Tim Henning, and Tim Henning's a DEFCON 3. Did he get tongue? <laughs> Um, yes, but the jug was on him. I was uh, sick at the time, so yeah. yeah. Tim uh, is coming to uh, spend some time with us uh, in Australia soon, I think, which is great. Oh, nice. Yeah. Nice. Um, okay. Uh, I want to do some, uh, read some reviews. Uh, mm-hmm. Wow, we've got a lot of reviews, apparently. Uh, wow, and I haven't looked at them yet, so let me <coughs> stroll you down. You want to... Yeah. Do a couple now, do a couple next time. But why don't you ask our newest producer, Chrissy? Obviously, she's given herself that title, <laughs> telling you how to pronounce names. <laughs> don't tell her I said that. I should just read the negative ones. <laughs> <laughs> sure. From a reviewer called Klingon Dirty Talk. <laughs> Throws around the N-word. The actually history these guys give us, great. The rest of it, not so much. They have no problem throwing around the N-word and treating it like a joke. To, hmm. to be honest, we definitely didn't treat it as a joke. Went to a great deal of effort to point out that it wasn't a joke. but Right. It was actually a conversation about it. You obviously weren't paying attention, Klingon dirty talk. <laughs> um, anyway... Let's read, read uh, uh, one of the better ones. Uh, okay. I'm just going to pick this one at random. Chris Silaf uh, from the United States. This is literally a podcast is the title. <laughs> Ray and Cam strike again with what can only be described as literally a podcast. The feisty Aussie Cam and the mild-mannered Yank Ray join forces to literally describe people, places, and events that help shape the Cold War. The two literally have a wonderful relationship, literally filled with clever banter, black humor, sexual innuendo, or more likely in Ray's endo, if Cam is to be literally (laughs) believed, and a deep love for history and the complexity inherent within it. During a long day at work, this podcast can literally make the time easier as I literally listen while I work. 
I wow. literally began listening to these two with the Life of Caesar podcast before literally adding Life of Caesar and the Cold War podcast to my rotation. I literally really like all the inside jokes and nicknames of all the players and get throughout the tellings of the lives of these powerful figures. So much of my time spent listening to these two discussing important events is spent laughing that I literally am happier after I listen to each episode. Aww. Cam can literally say some things that get under people's skin, but he's not literally not doing it for its own sake. World-shaping nice. events take literally a lot of effort from many people and factors and literally cannot be fully discussed <laughs> without literally mentioning the blemishes and missteps that people take. If you don't like what these two have to say, that is literally okay, but you can also literally yeah. stop listening if you don't like it. Ray is literally a nice guy. He is incredibly well read <coughs> on the topics discussed and will literally teach you things that you've never heard or give you a different perspective while literally using the word literally more often than is literally necessary or appropriate. I literally don't mind that much as I literally enjoy everything the show has to offer and can literally overlook something like overusing the word literally. Do I? That being Do said, I? maybe try to literally use the word literally a little less, Ray. If you're a fan of history, a fan of podcasts, or even just a fan of friends, this is the podcast for you. I figuratively cannot recommend this program enough and hope that you enjoy these two and their work as much as I do. Keep up the literal good work, fellas, and thanks for all the wonderful hours learning about great figures and the times they lived in. With literally my best regards, Chris Silaf. Silaf. Wow, I didn't know that you said literally a lot. I, I knew that you noticed. said sorry a lot, and I know I say you know a lot, but uh, there you go. <laughs> well, no, it's just another one. Well, first of all, I want to thank him, uh, Chris, is it, for the email? Yeah. From now on, I wish to be referred to as Yank Ray. Yank I, Ray. I that's the way for, Yank yeah. Ray, that's the way to go. Yeah. So I will literally try not to use that anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you, Chris. Send us an email to um, our email address. Sorry. I think it's email at a coldwar.com for this show. And give us your address, and we will send you a literal thank you gift <laughs> to be a literal coffee mug with our logo on it. Oh, my God. And that's all for this episode. Thank you, Man. everybody. Even Klingon Dirty Talk. Yes, thank you. Thank your you. bad, your, your very low command of the English language uh, gave me amusement. The actually history these guys give us great. <laughs> curtain has descended across the continent. Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. 